Fantastic. Our gospel lesson this morning is taken from John chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the tomb. I'm going to start again because I just heard that wrong. That's right, yeah, it is. Because right. now I'm not sitting up here reading the rest of it going, I wonder who heard me say tomb away from the tomb. We will need to do the absolution again at the end. I missed the audio. Right, do, you want, do you want me to uh, walk off, walk on so you can have that? Sure. Okay. Our gospel reading is from John chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. This is the Gospel of Christ. Let us pray together. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Easter means death has been defeated. Easter means creation has been affirmed. Easter means our redemption has been secured. Throughout history, the church has had to deal with certain tendencies that uh, seek to undermine the full meaning of Easter. Uh, These tendencies are known as Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism may not be a household word, uh, but I think it's a really good label for what is perhaps the oldest and most persistent heresy that the church has had to deal with. Uh, The apostles are already wrestling with various forms of Gnosticism in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, We have to counter it today. Uh, Not by that name, it doesn't go by that name, but it's still very much around. Gnosticism is the tendency to blame matter rather than sin for man's problems. And so for Gnostics, salvation is found in escaping the body rather than the resurrection of the body. Uh, For Gnosticism, the fall is not from righteousness to sin. It is from spirit into matter. And so salvation is found in escaping matter so that the divine spark within each of us can return to the heavenlies. Uh, Gnosticism is uh, greatly influenced by the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Uh, Plato actually called the body a prison house for the soul. The body is the prison house of the soul. And so death was welcomed because it freed the soul from its bodily bondage. That's the Gnostic view. Death is not an enemy. Death is deliverance because the body is the enemy. For Gnosticism, because the body is evil, matter is not important. And therefore, history is not important either. What matters are ideas, not history. What matters are experiences, not events. That's why Gnostics don't read the Bible as history, but as myth. Gnostics will tend to view the Bible not as a series of factual stories, things that really happened, but rather a collection of fables, a collection of myths, a collection of imaginative stories. Gnostics don't take the Bible's chronology seriously. Uh, They often dismiss its miracles. Uh, The events don't matter. That's really what, what it comes down to. The events don't matter, just the ideas. Uh, Gnostics don't see that biblical religion is a religion anchored in God's great acts in history. It is a historically anchored religion. Gnostics dismiss that. Gnosticism can become either lawless or legalistic, and you see both forms of, uh, of this in the New Testament and certainly in the church today. Uh, Legalistic Gnostics see the body as evil, and so they are suspicious of anything bodily. And so they are suspicious of marriage and sex. They're suspicious suspicious of, of feasting and of music. Lawless Gnostics go in the other direction. They say, well, the body doesn't matter, so do whatever you want with your body. The body has no, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's just your body anyway. Uh, And so you can do whatever you want. You can fulfill any desire. It just doesn't matter. Uh, Lawless Gnostics tend towards androgyny because the body doesn't matter. So the lines between male and female can be blurred. Physical, bodily reality, in this Gnostic view, must conform to our wishes, to our ideology, to our feelings. For the Gnostic, there can't be any meaning built into the body. 
There can't be any creational design in the physical world because that would curb the freedom of our spirits. So Gnosticism denies the symbolic design of the physical creation, including the human body. Here's another example of of this Gnostic tendency, one that I think you see in a lot of churches today. Gnostics do not view the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper as being very important because these are physical rituals. They use matter. They involve the body. They require touch and taste. And these are the very things the Gnostic is most suspicious of. I would argue that the more a church is influenced by Gnosticism, the easier it will be for that church to move everything online and even do a sort of virtual worship service, to become a virtual church. Because all the Christian faith is is a set of ideas Well, you don't miss that much if you can't meet. Uh, If you can't meet in person, you don't really miss that much. You can just go online, and and certainly you can communicate ideas that way. You can use the Internet to communicate ideas. So what gets lost? On that view, nothing. But if the Christian faith requires embodiment, if the Christian faith is, is manifest in embodied rituals, the practice of certain rituals, if the Lord's Supper with real bread and wine and with a real community is central to your faith. In other words, if you know you need more than just information, you need more than just ideas, well, in that case, the not being able to meet together in person is very traumatic. And I think this is what's happening to us here at TPC. This is, this is what's true for Trinity Presbyterian Church. We can't just replicate a worship service online because worship, a, a worship service requires us to be physically present with one another, to be physically present to one another. Uh, a full and true liturgy cannot be streamed. A full and true liturgy cannot be televised. The Eucharist cannot be televised. It's just not that kind of thing. It requires a gathering in a particular place with a particular community. Church is all about a particular people coming together in a particular place to do particular things. Gathered around this book. Gathered around a table. See, the whole idea of church requires that. But Gnostics don't see that. Gnostics don't see that. Gnostics always see the individual as more important than the community, just as they see ideas or experiences as more important than history. Uh, they see the body as more important, the, the spirit as more important than the body. But for consistent Christians, the communion of the saints, that is, saints coming together, saints gathering in a kind of face-to-face way where we're physically present to one another, the communion of the saints matters. Bodies matter. Bodies gathering around a common table and sharing a common loaf of bread. All of that matters to consistent Christians. A church that doesn't really need or value the sacraments is already on the road to Gnosticism. Uh, I think that for us, the fact that this time apart, uh, I think the fact that this time under quarantine has been so hard and so jarring for us at TPC is actually a really good sign. Uh, It's a sign of health. It's a sign of vitality. It's a sign, yes, of our love for one another, but it's also a sign of our anti-Gnosticism. It means we're not Gnostics. If we were Gnostics, we wouldn't be bothered that much. We could just move everything online and not much gets lost. But we know a great deal has been lost. We know that the Christian faith is inseparable from the visible church. 
that the Christian faith can really only be lived out in a community of Christians, an actual community with members, with officers, a community that meets together at a particular time, at a particular place, to read from a book, to sing together with, with glorious physical instruments backing up our voices, coming together to eat and drink together. Wherever the church gathers and does these things, wherever the church gathers around the word and around the table, we know God promises to be present there in a special way. And God willing, we'll be able to meet again uh, in this kind of way soon because we know we need it. We know we need it badly. We need it desperately. Here's another angle on this, another aspect of this Gnostic tendency. It affects worship, certainly, but it, it affects the whole of the Christian life. Christians who are influenced by Gnosticism tend to retreat from culture. Because culture is messy, culture is embodied, and so Christians, to the degree they've been shaped by or influenced by Gnosticism, they cannot connect their spiritual lives to politics. They cannot connect their spiritual lives to economics or to art or to entertainment or to education. And so their whole view of the Christian life is radically truncated. Likewise, Christians who are influenced by Gnosticism have a view of the future that is greatly truncated. See, Christians who are influenced by Gnosticism tend to think only in terms of the soul going to heaven at death. And they don't think in terms of the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and new earth at the last day. The, the resurrection, not just of our bodies, but really the resurrection and renovation of the whole physical creation. And yet that is the Christian hope. Christians who are influenced by Gnosticism uh, fail to see that the biblical gospel is not just about going to heaven when you die. It is about the transformation and restoration of all of life. They fail to see that the gospel transforms everything it touches and ultimately it will touch everything. That is the Christian hope. It's that comprehensive. A hope not just for our souls, but for our bodies. A hope not just for individuals, but for communities and cultures and indeed the whole creation. And so really, we need to see the celebration of Easter as a declaration of war on all forms of Gnosticism. Gnosticism has declared war on Easter. Gnosticism fights back. But we need to see the celebration of Easter as a declaration of war on all forms of Gnosticism. Easter celebrates not just an idea, not just a philosophy, but a real historical event. An event that involves a body being brought back from death. An event that involves this resurrected Jesus then forming a community around himself and sending his disciples, his followers out, to transform the whole world, to disciple the nations, to transform cultures, to save individuals, yes, but, but even to transform the nations. Whereas Gnostic salvation is found in leaving the body, Christian salvation is found in God taking a body and dying in that body and then taking that body again on the third day. Gnosticism is all about leaving the body. The gospel is about getting the body back. That's the Christian hope. 
Gnostics, therefore, you, you, you can see how they really have a problem with the whole gospel. Gnostics have a problem with Christmas because it celebrates the incarnation, the Word made flesh. And Gnostics have a problem with Easter because it celebrates the resurrection, Jesus coming out of the tomb in a glorified body. Gnosticism is an alternative interpretation of reality, and it is a false interpretation, a dangerously false interpretation of reality. Now, all four Gospels are united in telling the same Easter story. They all tell the story of Easter really as the climax of the Gospel, but each Gospel writer does so in a unique way. And John's account is perhaps the most unique in that it has the least in common with the other three Gospels. And John tells the Easter story in such a way that we will see both who Jesus is and what his resurrection has accomplished. The fact of the resurrection and what it tells us about the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, what he has accomplished. We find in verse 1 of chapter 20 that this is the first day of the week, so it is Sunday morning, and Mary Magdalene uh, comes to the tomb early before dawn. Now, first day of the week, darkness, this is taking us back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. This is going to be a story that moves from darkness to light on the first day, just like the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. But she finds, much to her amazement, to her surprise, the stone has been removed from the tomb. And so she runs to get Peter and John because she wants them to know. Well, what does she want them to know? Well, it's not that Jesus is risen. The possibility of resurrection has not occurred to her, at least not at this point. Uh, she may not have had the benefit of modern science, but she knew dead bodies stay dead. And so she's expecting to find a corpse, and when the stone of the tomb is rolled away, her first thought is not resurrection. The body of Jesus has, has been brought back from the dead. No, her first thought is the body's been stolen. And so she tells Peter and John what she's thinking. She says they, and we don't know exactly who they are, but probably the Jewish enemies of Jesus, maybe the Roman enemies of Jesus. But they, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, a couple of things about this are interesting. She refers to the corpse of Jesus as Lord, which is interesting. Why would you refer to a dead body in this way? But she also believes that he is really dead, that the Lord is dead, because she speaks of where he has been lain. So she's still thinking in terms of a corpse. So now Peter and John rush to the tomb to see for themselves. And John gets there first, but he waits on Peter. And so Peter, as the leader of the disciples, is allowed to enter first. And then John goes in, and what do they see? Well, we're told they see the linen burial garments of Jesus lying there, and the face cloth is folded up and in its own place. The significance of these details is not apparent yet, but it will be as we move through the story. So we'll circle back around to this in a bit. John tells us at this point he believed, that is, he believed in the resurrection. But he also tells us they didn't really yet understand the scripture's teaching that he must rise from the dead. So even if John at this point believes Jesus is risen, he hasn't yet grasped the real meaning, the full significance of that fact. And so they go back to their homes to ponder this, to puzzle over what they've seen. But Mary hangs around the tomb. 
And verse 11 tells us she was weeping, apparently alone. She's uh, there at the tomb. She is crying. And then she stoops to look into the tomb. And you really have to visualize this. You really have to, 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 to picture in your mind what she saw. She sees two angels dressed in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the feet. And the angels ask, woman, so note how they address her. They don't address her by name. They treat her as a representative figure, even a symbolic figure, we might say, a generic woman, a representative of women in Scripture. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Well, uh, she's probably astounded by what she sees, but also no doubt by what she hears. How could they not know she's looking for the body of Jesus? She's weeping because he's gone, because his body isn't there. So she says, they have taken away my Lord. Note that language again. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, Mary's not yet able to put the clues together. She can't yet piece all of this together, but let's see if we can, and we can figure out what's going on here. Go back to the early uh, parts of Genesis in the scripture. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, what happened? They were cast out of that holy place, that holy sanctuary. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary, had sacramental trees there. It's where they would commune with God and worship God. They were cast out of the sanctuary when they sinned. And God stationed two angels with flaming swords at the entryway to the sanctuary, to the Garden of Eden, to make sure that they did not even try to enter the sanctuary again. And from that time forward, man is excluded from the holy place. Man is excluded from the sanctuary. Those flaming swords are a sign that the only way back into God's presence will be through blood and fire. That is, through sacrifice. Later in history, God revealed to Moses the plan for a new sanctuary. Uh, Really, in a sense, you could say a new Garden of Eden, a house for God to dwell in in the midst of his people. And so the tabernacle was built. And it has all this imagery that is reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Uh, And it's got various rooms, including the holy place and the most holy place. And the most holy place is what we're really interested in. The most holy place was like a new Garden of Eden. It was God's throne room. And it contained the Ark of the Covenant, which was this box, a wood box covered in gold with various treasures in it. And on top of this Ark of the Covenant was uh, what was known as the Mercy Seat, which is where God was enthroned. And on either side of the Mercy Seat were angels, angelic figures. And so the psalmist tells us God was enthroned between or above the angels. So visualize that. Visualize the Ark of the Covenant. Angels on either end, God dwelling in the middle. This is where the Shekinah glory of God is found. Now visualize the tomb as Mary sees it. The place where Jesus' body had been laid and an angel on either end. You can see how one overlays the other. You can see what's happening here. The tomb has become a most holy place. 